morning everyone this morning we continue on with our new series and we hope that it's an encouraging encouraging time for you and we just hope and pray that um, this isn't just a time for us to gain some new knowledge and learn some new things but that we genuinely are able to worship um, God that we are genuinely able to draw near to him and that in the things that we learn and begin to see in the scriptures that we come to appreciate the Lord more for what he's done for us on the cross and the love that he has for us enjoy
Good morning, Cresswick. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise, in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Let's pray. Father, our purpose today is to worship you and to praise you, the one and only one who is worthy of our praise. We would ask that you would be with us today by the Spirit of God <clears throat> as we gather together, pray for the ministry of your word, <clears throat> and ask, Father, that you would uh, instruct us uh, by the word of God, um, by the Spirit of God, and that you would enable us to enable enable us to um, ex to stand stand up and um, uh, speak our word, your word, to us in this world. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing uh, in Revelation chapter one. Last week we looked at the first eight verses of Revelation one. Uh, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. So the, the second half of Revelation chapter 1. So I'm going to read that text, and then we'll uh, look at it together. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, there's a lot to be said, of course, about this text. Uh, it's just something to note 
is this description. A lot of what's said in chapter one is picked up in the rest of the book, and we'll see some of these things uh, embedded in the letters to the churches in chapters two and three. But one of the things that's actually just so refreshing about uh, this revelation is John's attitude about it. Remember, uh, John had actually walked with Jesus. John had seen Jesus. He had uh, heard. You think, think about, we read the Gospels and we have the words of Jesus in terms of teaching. But Jesus had certain you know, mannerisms. He had eyes that were a particular color. Uh, he had a particular height and, uh, you know, if you know someone well, you can identify them by their walk even before you see their face. Uh, his voice had a certain timbre and tone to it. He inflected words in certain ways. He, he had a particular cadence while he talked. He had gesticulations. Uh, he took up a certain you know, amount of space. John knew Jesus. John met Jesus raised again. And what was it like to hear Jesus actually teach? What was it like to actually see him perform his miracles? John knew. John was an apostle. John had a lot, humanly speaking, to take pride in in terms of his position and advantages. But he never did. In fact, here, he identifies himself simply as John, your brother and companion. There, there's an emphasis on unity here. There's an emphasis on the fact that we are in this together. You know, I, I am not above you. I am part of you. That's what John is saying. And, and how refreshing is that from, from one of the preeminent apostles of Jesus Christ just saying to the churches, listen, listen, I'm your brother and companion. And I am your brother and companion, not in terms of status and wealth and position and glory, and, you know, human glory and privilege, but I am your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. This is real fellowship. You know, we... We call the, the fellowship room the place where we have coffee in styrofoam cups on a Sunday morning. But fellowship is deep partnership in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. We, we are God's people, but we sometimes suffer. We sometimes suffer persecution and loss, uh, sometimes persecuted for righteousness, sometimes just experiencing the, the vicissitudes of life, the, the struggle and the pain and the sorrow of just living in this world. Or psychological. Uh, so there's psychological suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, physical suffering, relational, societal, global suffering. Being a Christian doesn't exempt us from that. In fact, there are sources of joy that attend to being a Christian. There are also sources of pain and suffering that attend for being a Christian, trying to do what's right. The church knew what it was to suffer. The church around the world today knows what it's like to suffer in many places. 
We have fellowship. We're, we're brothers and sisters and family and companions in suffering. But, but that's not all there is, though. There's also companionship in the kingdom. That is, we suffer for the kingdom. We suffer for the king. And so our, our suffering is, is, we're united in suffering because we're, we're united in the kingdom and in the, patience in, in the patient endurance. That is, we have a kingdom now, it's inaugurated, but there's more in the future. And so we endure recognizing that we are blessed now through Jesus Christ, but there is far more to come. Jesus Christ has not yet come back to consummate all things. You know, we haven't, we're not yet living in the new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness. And so we persist in moving forward through suffering with the partial down payment of the kingdom because there's a lot more to come. And so we endure patiently together in the suffering and in the kingdom because these things are ours in Jesus. Sometimes we suffer because we're trying to do what's right in Jesus. We are in the kingdom because we are in Jesus. We endure patiently because we are in Jesus. The suffering and kingdom and patient endurance are ours in Jesus. That's what really unites us. All of our experiences together are united and integrated because of our shared union with Jesus himself. Well, John says, I'm your brother and companion in these things. And I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been exiled to this, uh, you know, to this island. And it's, I mean, it's a substantial island. It's not just like a, you know, a little uh, desert island, the, the way you might think of like, you know, Gilligan or, you know, a cartoon. You know, Patmos was a you know, 10 by 5 miles. I mean, that's not huge by any sense of the imagination, but it's not, it's not super tiny either. And so that's where he's been removed. And, and beca it's because of the word and testimony, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And this means that because he is faithfully testifying to Jesus Christ and he is proclaiming the kingdom and teaching the word of God, he's been removed from the mainland. He's been banished. He's been banished out to this island. And amazingly, it's at this island where he receives this incredible unveiling and revelation about God and Jesus. He says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So it's the Lord's day, not the day of the Lord. And so uh, probably Lord's day here is a reference to the first day of the week. And he finds himself in the spirit. Uh, this is clearly a charismatic experience. And we need to be very careful that we use the word charismatic properly. Uh, today, there are churches that brand themselves as charismatic. They're the ones who've received the grace gifts of God. This is what charismatic means. Charis is grace. And to, be, to have you know, a charismatic gift is to have a, a gift that operates by grace. Uh, and so we have Christians that brand themselves this way. The, the reality is, you know, Paul makes very clear that every Christian is charismatic. In the biblical proper sense, every Christian has spiritual gifts. And here, to be in the Spirit, to operate by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, that, that's charismatic in the, in the proper and highest sense, actually. Paul is in the Spirit 
when he ascends to the third heaven. Peter is in the spirit when he has his trance. And so here John is, is in a sense, raptured up in the spirit. He, he is taken in the spirit. We'll see this again a few times, actually, uh, in the book. And so whatever's going on here, it is not John's imagination. It is not John's natural intelligence and brilliance. It is not John even understanding the teaching of Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit coming upon him to give him insight and vision and experience that he would never have otherwise. Here's, here's a voice, like a trumpet. We'll see that again. This is right on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, it is important to say these are seven actual churches in the same way that Crestwick is a church, in the same way that Calvary Baptist is a church, uh, you know, in the same way that Lakeside is a church. These are actual churches. These, these are not metaphors. Uh, they are as real as the church in Corinth or you know, the church in Philippi. These churches are about 30 to 50 miles apart. In fact, the, uh, the order of them, it kind of gives you a mail route as you would go and a letter carrier would go and deliver in this sort of logical order. They're also very strategic in terms of being uh, centers for posting and so the intersection of culture and travel and trade and commerce and all of the rest. But these are real churches. These are not symbolic for church ages. In fact, one of the, the things that baffles me, frankly, is that there's this teaching that, that these seven churches are uh, seven, they represent seven ages of the church through history. And usually the people who think that think that we're in the, the Laodicean era. The baffling thing about it is that a lot of those people also think that um, you're supposed to interpret Revelation in the most literal way possible. But if you're going to interpret Revelation in the most literal way possible, you can't possibly think that these churches are symbolic. I mean, you're, you're sort of falling down at your first hurdle in terms of consistency and interpretation, if that's the way that you take it. Uh, not only that, but it is such a Western reading. These people look around at the churches in the United States and North America and say, look, well, we're wealthy, but we're not. You know, we're just lukewarm, etc. You want to say, listen, go to China and say that the church is wealthy and lukewarm. Go to Latin America and say the church is wealthy and lukewarm. I mean, the only way you can possibly think that is if you don't realize that there's a world besides Canada and the United States. No, these are, these are real churches. This letter is for all of them. Now, this loud voice is spoken like a trumpet. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, the lamp stands, of course, um, you know, support the light. And one of the things that's helpful with Revelation is sometimes, if you just keep reading, you, you, get, you get some help here. So you see th this person, like a son of man, standing around or among the lampstands, these seven golden lampstands. And in the end, verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So if you just keep reading, you get the, the interpretation of verse 13 in verse 20. And that interpretation is that these lampstands, that which the, lamp, the light sits on, are the churches. That's really in many ways 
one of the jobs of the church. Uh, it's, it's not all that the church does, but a large part of what the church does is the church supports the light. It doesn't create the light, it doesn't generate the light, but the light sits on it so that it can be visible. The gospel does not originate with the church, but the gospel goes out through the church. It's the Holy Spirit, yes, of course, and the Word of God, yes, of course. But where does the Word of God get proclaimed? Well, it should be in your life as a believer, but it, it comes through the people of God. It comes through the assembly of God, the church. So the church isn't the source of light. And, I mean, to, to shift the metaphor just slightly, um, the church is like uh, the moon. You know, the moon does not have an intrinsic light source in itself. The moon reflects light. And that's sort of what the church is like. The light doesn't stem naturally from the church, but the church reflects the light of God. Uh, here again, this metaphor is uh, you have the lamp and the church is the stand on which that lamp is set to be supported to illuminate the room. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, this is going to be uh, drawing on the Daniel 7 imagery. You know, Daniel 7, 13 talks like, about one like a son of man who approaches the ancient of days and receives an everlasting kingdom. So the one who is among the churches is the son of man from Daniel 7. The one who comes to the ancient of days, the one who was and is and is to come. The one who receives the kingdom that will never fade or, or perish or spoil or be surpassed in any way. This one, like a son of man, is dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Now the, the, the robe-sash combination can connote you know, one of two things. Uh, it, it may be a priest. Uh, Josephus told us, or tells us that uh, priests sometimes had golden sashes to hold their robes uh, together. So it could be a priest, or it may be just like a ruler or a king or a dignitary. So, so the style of like the long robe and, and the golden sash, it, it may connote sort of priestly function. It may connote ruler, kingly function. Either way, maybe it connotes both. Uh, maybe there's an ambiguity there. But either way, uh, the imagery is of, is, is of important function. The hair on his head was white like wool. Now this is actually this whole section, what follows, borrows on not the Son of Man in Daniel 7, but the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. That is, the one here, like the Son of Man, is being described as God himself was described in Daniel chapter 7. White wool. You know, that nothing in the ancient world was whiter than pure, clean wool. It was also, and this is something you know different in, from our society, it was also a mark of wisdom. Elders were honored. Elders were actually respected. Today, we have a cult of youth. Uh, today, we, we worship uh, youthfulness and strength. In the ancient world, they, they respected those who are elderly because of their wisdom, accrued wisdom over time. 
And Jared Diamond, in his book, The World Until Yesterday, notes that in, in sort of pre-literary cultures, the elderly are like the living encyclopedias. And so if there are certain events that happen sort of, uh, you know, every few decades, like let's say, you know, every 20 or 30 years, there's a massive drought. Or every 20 or 30 years, there's a massive tsunami or something like that, that, that destroys crops, famine. If you, get an event, if you get an event like that every, every 20 or 30 years, and, and in a lot of cultures, you know, the, the average life expectancy is between, you know, 40, 50, 60, then that, that child that was, or that teenager that was 15, 30 years later is 45 and is pushing, you know, old age in that culture. Well, well, who remembers? Who has lived experience for surviving those events? Well, the, the only ones who, who went through it are the ones who are old. And so they were the storytellers, the historians, the encyclopedias. He says they were like the elderly in a lot of cultures are like the library. You know, today, horribly, we'd shifted from books to internet. You'd say, you know, the, the, the elderly or like the internet, they were like Google, you know, they're like Siri back in, uh, in the day. This is one of the reasons why the elderly aren't valued as much anymore. We prize strength and we get our information from all kinds of different sources. So, and we also live in a culture that, that thinks that by definition, whatever's newer is better. And so where you live in a culture where whatever is newer is better, whatever's novel is better, then those who are old are, are immediately behind the eight ball because the whole cultural ethos is what's new is best. And so if you're old, then you're not wise. You're just set in the, your ways or stodgy or whatever it happens to be. But the one like a son of man, Jesus himself, has hair like wool. His, but his eyes are like blazing fire. He's wise, but he's not old and frail. Right? He's not doddering. Uh, he, he's full of penetrating fire. He sees through you. You know, it's, it's taxing to stand in his gaze. His eyes pierce you. And when you look into his eyes, you, you see his soul. Your know, eyes are, are the, the, the entranceway to seeing someone's heart sometimes. If you know who they are and you know how to read them. Eyes are remarkable things. And here you look into the eyes of Jesus and you, and you see like burning, flaming, holy fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. There's power there. There's stability and strength. In the Old Testament, feet, where your feet take you, you know, becomes a metaphor for the whole course of your life. So your feet sort of are representative of all that you are. Here, his feet are, are powerful and impressive and pure and glowing like bronze, mighty and awesome. His voice with the sound of rushing waters. In Ezekiel 43, 12, God's voice has the sound of rushing waters. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever been anywhere where the, where the water is really, really rushing. You know, one of the things that that's, uh, uh, you know, is, is wonderful at hiking or, or canoeing or camping, sometimes you can get out and 
let's say you're in the woods and you're hiking and you, and you can begin to sometimes hear water. You can begin to hear this little murmur. And you, and you follow the sound, it begins to build a little bit louder and louder and louder. Sometimes you can stand by sort of cataracts with really strong rushing water and you have to shout to be heard. The person can be right next to you. And so you have this voice like mighty rushing roaring waters, metaphorically drowning out all other sounds. In his right hand he held seven stars. The, the right hand is the hand of power and, and control and protection. We find out later, of course, the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. We'll get to that in due course. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And you know this is the word of God. This is his decree. This is his truth. His truth and his decrees and his word is like a sharp, double-edged sword. And it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. It is his weapon of truth. His face with the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, I'm not recommending you do this. In fact, do not do this. Do not do this. But you go out and you look directly into the sun. How long can you hold that gaze? Well, if you want to permanently damage your eyes, you can hold that gaze for a little while, I suppose. But you can't just, you can't look directly into the sun. You squint, you blink, you turn your head. Jesus is too brilliant to look at fully in the face. That's, what, that's the image of the text. His eyes are like fire. He's completely and perfectly wise. His feet are glowing like bronze, superheated in a furnace. His voice is like a cataract of rushing water. He, he's holding the seven stars. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword, and his face is like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. The composite picture here is even apart from the details. You're supposed to just be absolutely, completely impressed with the power and majesty of this figure. He's a figure who is awesome in the literal sense of the word, which is why, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the response to the unveiled revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, his power and holiness and righteousness and glory and truth. John, who was his beloved disciple, John who knew him both pre and post resurrection, John who had talked with him, John who had leaned against him at the Last Supper, this John sees Jesus this way and falls at his feet as though dead. That's the right response. But Jesus takes him in his right hand, as Jesus uses his right hand, his hand of power and control and authority, to take John up gently. He placed his right hand on I me. Mean, this, is, this is comfort, and strengthening, and commissioning. And he said, do not be afraid. So many times in the Gospels, Jesus tells people not to be afraid. The angels tell people, do not be afraid. They tell Mary not to be afraid. They tell the women, do not be afraid. So often angels are saying, do not be afraid. Jesus is telling people, do not be afraid. He says that all the time in the Gospels. And here again, to reassure John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He is the living one. He is not merely alive. 
He is alive after conquering death itself. He does not merely have life. He is the source of life. He doesn't just live. He is the living one. And we live because he sustains us. He was dead. He was actually dead. Like, really and truly dead. Yet now he lives again. And because in his death, death itself died. Because death could not defeat his eternal, unconquerable life. He is alive forever and ever. And he holds the keys to death and Hades. In other words, not only does death not have power over him, he has power over death. He has the keys. He has the authority. He is the master. Not death itself. Our Lord defeated death. Because of that, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Now, verse 19 is a highly contested and debated verse in studies of the book in terms of its structure. Uh, I'm not really going to get into all of that now, uh, or at any other time, to be honest. But some people want to say they want to divide the book up into between what is now, or sorry, what has been seen, what is now, and what will be in the future. And and where you line those various categories up in terms of what text is is slotted into what group, you can get a very different reading of the book. Nonetheless, you know, John is to be faithful to what he's seen, what's happening, and what will happen in the future. The mystery of the seven stars. Now, mystery here doesn't mean that it's mysterious. It means that you just couldn't know it unless God himself specifically told you. So the mystery of the seven stars, the revelation about what the seven stars are, you couldn't know yourself, is that they are the angels of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches. Now, angels, we'll talk more about this perhaps next week. Angels can refer to, the word angel just means messenger. And so the question is, are these messengers to the churches or are they angels sort of ontologically, that is in terms of their being? Is it an angel like Gabriel or is it just an angel who's a messenger? So angelos in Greek uh, means messenger. Then you don't know, is it actually an angelic being or is it a human messenger? Uh, the context usually makes it clear. Here it's not quite as clear. Now, what is clear though is this. The one like the Son of Man is in the midst of the churches. So the churches hold up the light, and the Son of Man, this Jesus, raised from light, or raised from the dead to life, he's amongst the churches. He's in the middle of the churches. And he's holding the messengers to the churches. In other words, he is sovereignly and powerfully in control of the church. He is sovereignly and powerfully in control of the messengers to the church, whether angelic or human. The, the image, so again, with Revelation, you can bog down in all the little details, but the, but the, the main point, regardless of your interpretation of, of you know, the, the correct meaning of, of uh, angelos in this verse, the main meaning is this. It's not about the angels, it's about Jesus. He's the one who holds them in his hand of power. 
He is the one who's in control of the church. He's the one who has been raised from the dead. The focus is on Jesus. And aren't you glad, honestly, that it's Jesus who's in charge of the church and not you and not me? He is the Lord of the church. He is the head of the church. He and no one else. I'm so glad that I am not the ultimate authority in the church. I'm so glad that you are not the ultimate authority in the church. I'm so glad that we corporately are not the ultimate authorities in the church. Jesus is the one who reigns and rules over the church. Everyone else is is a detail. He's the main point of it all. He's the head. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the God. He's the shepherd. He's the savior. John, who knew him well, falls at his feet as though dead in worship. May we worship too. Worship Jesus for who he is and also for how he cares for the church. We're all in his right hand, his hand of power. He's guarding us and protecting us and keeping us safe because he loves us. Let's stay there. Let's draw strength and security from that. Our Lord is risen and above all things, the first and the last. We are brothers and sisters and companions in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance in Jesus. And this is Jesus. One small glimpse of his glory as he controls the churches and guides and protects them to reach the the ends that his Father has ordained. Well, Lord willing, next week we'll start to look at some of the the, the messages to the specific churches. Um, But to always remember that it is this Jesus who rules and reigns over all of them, including Crestwick Baptist Church, uh, including where we are today. He rules and reigns over all churches at all times because there is ultimately only one church, one flock, his body around the world. Well, may God help us. May God help us to be faithful to him and to appreciate his son and to worship him as we reflect on his character, on his glory, and on all that he does for his people. For
For you.